Will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, Matthew 7, and we have Bibles that we will distribute to anybody who needs one, so these brothers have come forward, they're going to make their way to the back and get their attention and they'll get a Bible to you so that you can follow along as we look at Matthew 7. And please keep that Bible as our gift to you, we want everyone to own a copy of God's Word and bring it with you each week, hopefully. I've told you on a few occasions now recently about my contempt for shopping, shopping of any type really, so I promise this will be my last reference to that for a good while. But on occasion I have the misfortune of having to go to the grocery store and buy some items. Those times are rare, I'm glad to say, because in our house Kim does the normal grocery shopping and I go in emergencies. An emergency is when she's cooking and she realizes she's missing an essential ingredient. So it might go something like this. Honey, I'm making a cake. I need a can of pineapple. Will you run up to the store real quick and get some? Now this routine has occurred a good number of times in what will be, two weeks from now, our 30 years of marriage. Thank you. But you would think after all that time that this task would be pretty simple. Go to the store and get one item or sometimes a few items. But we've learned over the years that it's necessary for Kim to provide a detailed list for me. She usually only needs these one or two items, so you'd think I wouldn't need a list for that. But I don't so much need a list for the items as I do a description of the particular can of pineapple she wants. Because when I get to the store, there's this bewildering array of choices, including a myriad of choices of the same type of item. So after passing hundreds of other products, I find the canned pineapple section. And I stand there and I go, hmm, well, which brand? Does she like the store brand or Dole or Dolmonte or... And so I go with the name brand just to be safe. And so I pull off a can of dull crushed pineapple in its own juice. But then I wonder, should it be crushed with its own juice or crushed with heavy syrup? Or should it be crushed at all? And how about pineapple tidbits? Or pineapple chunks? Or pineapple slices? Now, when we were first married, before we had cell phones, the only solution, since I couldn't contact her to ask, was to buy all of them. (laughs) So cans of various types of pineapple go in the basket. And as I'm ready to leave the aisle, I see larger sizes of dull canned pineapple. And I think to myself, which size? And so all the smaller ones go back on the shelf, replaced by the larger ones. Back then, whenever I would go on these miserable excursions, without exception, I returned with more than one type of the item that I was supposed to get. Now, today, Kim tries to put all the details on the list, and with cell phones, if I run into trouble, I can just call her or text her. But this whole issue is created because in America, we have more choices about more things than any place on earth and more than at any other time in history. We are champions of choice. Choice is freedom, right? 
So we demand variety and the right to choose any of a range of options. We have choices which, depending on your age, your grandparents and possibly even parents knew nothing of. Choices of restaurants, of toys, toys both for kids and adults, I might add. Choices of jobs, choices of TV channels. I remember when there were three channels. Two, four, seven. If you liked hockey, Channel 9 out of Windsor. And if you had UHF, you could maybe get Channel 20 and Channel 50. So you just had literally a handful of TV channels, and now there are literally hundreds, maybe thousands for all I know. Choices of TV channels, radio stations, houses, and on it goes. And as a result, it's hard for many of us to make up our minds. There are just too many choices. So we think to ourselves, I need to try some others to make sure I'm not missing out. We change our minds. We may try one brand for a while. If we don't like it next week, switch to another. And this applies to both small and large decisions, food and restaurants, but also to jobs and houses and spouses and churches. I make the choice, and I'll stay with the choice for as long or as little as I desire. Why should I be confined, we think to ourselves? Choice is freedom, and freedom is good, right? But friends, God does not conform His truth to fit American values. Christianity is not, contrary to what so many think and live out, Christianity is not American culture with Jesus mixed in. Our passage today in the middle of Matthew chapter 7 brings us to the concluding section of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. All the way from the beginning of the sermon back in chapter 5 and verse 1 through what we saw last week in chapter 7 and verse 12, Jesus has taught what it is to be a genuine follower of His. And now beginning in verse 13, He gives what we might call the invitation at the end now of His sermon. It's a call to the C word, commitment. And that's apparently a scary word for us. Much has been written, for example, about the aversion of so many young men to commit themselves to a woman and marry and start a family, all of which were commonplace not very long ago. The reason so many of us are afraid of any type of commitment is because commitment, by definition, limits our options, our choices, and therefore we think our freedom. And Jesus' call to commitment is not just for a while, but it's a call to commitment forever. And further, his call to commitment does not involve an array of choices, but only two. In verses 13 through 27 of Matthew 7, Jesus speaks of commitment to him in terms of two ways with two different kinds of destinations. We're going to see that today. And two trees with two kinds of fruit. And two builders with two kinds of character. And two foundations with two kinds of endurance. No matter how Jesus says it, the options are always only two. Well, friends, we need God's help to overcome our aversion to commitment. And to choose wisely as he presents us with only these two options. So I invite you to bow as we ask the Lord for His help. 
Father, help us today and in these coming weeks as we look at the stark choices that God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, gives to us. Lord, this is hard for us as sinners. It's hard for us as Americans because we want to make our own choices and define what those choices are and have many of them, not only two. And so, Lord, we need you to illumine our minds and open our hearts. We ask you to do that very thing in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 13 of Matthew 7. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. In this passage, Jesus uses the imagery of a journey. And the various components of that journey are these. There's the beginning, the gate, which puts you on the road, which in turn determines your traveling companions, which each road leads to its own destination. I want us to see five applications of these two verses. And I have those five points in the outline that we've inserted for you in your program. If you don't have that out, I encourage you to take it out now and follow along. As we see, first of all, that Jesus is telling us that the Christian life is unyielding. The Christian life is unyielding. Before we consider the narrow gate that Jesus commands that we enter, consider that there's another, he says, wide gate. That wide gate is an inclusive gate. That wide gate is easy to pass through. It's a gate that's wide enough to include everyone. It's wide enough to accommodate the broadest mind. It's wide enough to accommodate everyone regardless of the baggage they bring. And so as you approach this wide gate, you don't have to give anything up to get through. You can take it all with you. And if you see Jesus standing at this gate, and Jesus asks if he can come along, you say, sure. And you can add Jesus, now hear this, you can add Jesus to your journey. But he makes no demands. He does not alter your course. He just becomes your traveling companion through your life, helping you carry out your agenda. That's the way many people see it. That's the wide gate. You know, at the airport baggage check, there's a box that you use to determine whether your carry-on bag is too large. If you can fit your bag in the box, then you're good. If not, it's too large. But at this wide gate that Jesus speaks of, there are no restrictions on you. And this is very good, we think. After all, in the words of those great theologians, the Commodores, I know it sounds funny, but I just can't stand the pain. Girl, I'm leaving you tomorrow. Seems to me, girl, you know I've done all I can. You see, I begged, I stole, and I borrowed. Why in the world would anybody put chains on me? I paid my dues to make it. Everybody wants me to be what they want me to be. I'm not happy when I try to fake it. That's why I'm easy. I'm easy like Sunday morning. Just as an aside, I'm thinking that many people consider Sunday morning easy because they don't do anything in particular at that time, perhaps. 
And the song asks, why in the world would anybody put chains on me? Well, if that's your fear, being confined in your options, then this wide gate is for you. It's wide and therefore it's easy. Easy like Sunday morning. But despite our preference for no strings and for infinite choices, Jesus says in verse 13, enter through the narrow gate. And we are going to see that that narrow gate is a person. That narrow gate through which you enter that now leads you down a particular narrow road, as we will see, and toward an ultimate destination, that gate is the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And Christianity makes these exclusive claims about the Lord Jesus Christ and about Him being the gate, Him being the way, His first followers preached this exclusive message. For example, in Acts chapter 4, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Oh, dear friends, is this an unpopular message in our age of pluralism? (laughs) And yet Jesus said of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And even though Oprah doesn't believe that, I remember I saw a video of Oprah saying on her show, that can't possibly be true. And then she spins her yarn about why it can't be true. But whether Oprah believes it or not, Jesus is God and Jesus has the right to make these claims and he does very clearly. I am the gate, and I am therefore this narrow gate. And anyone who seeks to offer another way, an alternative to Jesus, does so at his or her own eternal peril, because Jesus said, I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The narrow gate is a person, and the narrow gate is restrictive. It's narrow, that is, it's small. And how small? Well, in your mind, you should picture not double doors like we have all around this building or even two sets of double doors at our main entrance where multiple people can walk in at the same time. Instead, picture a turnstile, like one you would go through at a sporting event. It will only allow one person at a time. Now, among other things, Jesus is saying that you must come alone. No one else can come through with you. No one else can come through for you. So you do not depend on your denominational affiliation or that your parents christened you when you were a child or had you baptized. God has no grandchildren. And each of us enters the gate individually and personally. And when we enter the gate, the gate being Jesus, It affects the entire course of our lives. It charts our course not only for our ultimate destination, which we'll see later, but it charts our course in this life, not just the next. And rather than adding Jesus to our journey, 
Hear this. Rather than adding Jesus to our journey, we join him and go the way that he has designed for us. The Christian life is unyielding, Jesus is telling us here. And he's saying, secondly, the Christian life is uncommon. It's unyielding and it's uncommon. Jesus speaks in these verses not only of a wide and narrow gate, but the two gates lead to two different roads, one broad and the other narrow. Entering the gate is only the beginning. It, in turn, determines the course of your life. The broad road is the natural road and therefore easy. All people, unless they intentionally and personally and individually choose the narrow gate, all people are on this broad road. One of the implications of this is that all religions do not point to the same God. All roads do not lead to heaven. Hear this, friends. There are not many ways to heaven. There is but one. The options are not many. There are but two. The true and the false, the right and the wrong, Jesus and everything else. The narrow gate leads to the narrow road of life. That sounds so depressing and so negative and burdensome. And after all, Jesus said our life in Him would not be burdensome. So how is it that we harmonize the demands that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount and now this invitation that He gives at the end to the narrow gate and the narrow road? How do we harmonize that with passages like what He said in Matthew chapter 11? Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Well, one way to harmonize those, Jesus makes these very lofty demands in the Sermon on the Mount. One way to harmonize that with this is to simply ignore the demands, which is what many professing Christians do. But the other and right way to do it is to see the demands of Jesus as the way to freedom. That is, I see what He demands, and I want to obey, but I know that I cannot obey. And so I come humbly, as Jesus said at the beginning of the sermon in chapter 5 and verse 3, I come in poverty of spirit. And then as we saw last week together, I ask and I seek and I knock. And He in turn, as we saw last week, promises to give us the ability that we do not have naturally. And what I find is that as I accede to Jesus' demands, I find that this is what I was actually made for. And it's no burden to follow Jesus. And, his, and I find that His yoke is easy and His burden is light once I accede to His demands. It's similar to a train that really only has freedom, friends, if the train remains on the tracks designed for it. We, in our notion that having many choices and many roads and as many options as possible, think the train should be able to go anywhere it wants. That's freedom. No, that's dangerous. The train is only truly free when it remains on the tracks that were made for it. And our track is labeled Trust and Obey. And as the song says, there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey and then move in the direction that He has designed for us. 
Robert Frost ended his famous poem, The Road Not Taken, with the words, Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that is the road that every Christian takes, the one less traveled by. The Christian life is unyielding, and it's uncommon. And thirdly, the Christian life is unpopular. The Christian life is unpopular. On the broad road, entered through that wide gate, Jesus says there are many. So that road is a busy thoroughfare. And people who are on it take comfort in being on it because there are so many fellow travelers with them. Advertisers call this the bandwagon effect. Convincing people that they're missing out on something so many others are enjoying and benefiting from. And so, how many times do you hear an advertiser say, discover what thousands of others have found by calling this number, paying this amount, buying this product? And so there's the bandwagon effect, and there's comfort in those numbers, and Jesus says there are many on that road. Oh, dear friend, if you're to follow Jesus, it will be on the narrow road. It will not be the popular choice. Dear parents, if you would raise your child to be a Christian young person, then you must let them know that the Christian life is not the popular life. And you will not say, as I have heard parents say, not particularly here, not thinking of anyone in particular, how many times back many years ago in another life when I was a youth leader, I want my kids to just have a normal upbringing. Yikes, really? Normal? Like everybody else, you mean? If that's what you want, then you don't want them to have a Christian upbringing because a Christian upbringing is anything but normal. I've seen normal according to the culture, and I don't want it. Athanasius, theologian of the early church, believed what the Bible taught about Jesus being God, the divinity, the deity of Jesus. And yet, there was a council call to discuss that very issue because there was one, a man named Arius, who was teaching otherwise, that Jesus was not God from all eternity, but rather Jesus was a created being. In fact, his infamous saying was, there was a time when he, Jesus, was not. There was a time when he was not, when he did not exist, says Arius. And for a period of time, Arius was very influential. Most people, in fact, believed what Arius was teaching. Athanasius agitated for the truth of what the Bible taught. And at one point he was told, the whole world is against you, Athanasius. And his response was famously, then I am against the world. You see, truth is not popular. The road that Jesus calls us to is not popular. But let's be honest, we want to be mainstream. In fact, we consider for someone to be out of the mainstream to be one of the worst things imaginable. Most presidents get the opportunity to appoint at least one Supreme Court justice. Not always, because they only are replaced when they die or they retire. But most get to appoint at least one. And in turn, according to our Constitution, then that appointed justice has to be confirmed by the Senate. If the president nominates a candidate who's very liberal or very conservative, 
that judge will be labeled during that confirmation process as, quote, out of the mainstream. And sometimes, whether on the liberal side, on the conservative side, that person who stands for their principles, and I'm making no case for the rightness or wrongness of those principles, just illustrating the point, that that person may have to be out of the mainstream, and it may take a long time before other people, if ever, see any value in what they've said. Barry Goldwater ran for president in 1964, and he was considered to be out of the mainstream. In response, he made a famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, this statement at the 1964 Republican Convention in San Francisco. He said, extremism in the cause of liberty is no vice. He was beaten in the election by a landslide by Lyndon Johnson. But that campaign is credited or blamed, again, depending on your point of view, for igniting the then-fledgling conservative movement that resulted in the later elections of Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush. And quite apart from whether you liked Reagan or Bush, the point is that sometimes it takes a lifetime or even the afterlife for one's position to be vindicated. And who is in or out of the so-called mainstream is not the point. The point is that being considered to be part of the mainstream is important to the vast majority of people. But Christians will be proven right, even if it is only in the end. The person who is out of the mainstream, who marches to the beat of a different drummer, who does not go along with the crowd, who in other words is holy, will generally not be applauded and followed by multitudes. But he or she presses on because they're convinced of the truth of their position. And their motto is what the great apostle said in Romans chapter 3. Let God be true and every man a liar. The genuine Christian life is not the popular life. The road is narrow, and Jesus says, and few are on it. You all remember the Marines recruiting commercial some time ago? I'm not sure if it's still a Marine slogan. But it ended with the few, the proud, the Marines. And Jesus is telling us that heaven is populated by the few, the humble, the Christians. But why few? Why are there few on this particular road? Well, in Luke chapter 13, someone asked Jesus that very question. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Now, the person who asked that question observed that there were not that many people who were responding to Christ. You know, as you read through the Gospels, you'll have these ups and downs in Jesus' ministry where you have the multitudes pressing against Him. But you'll notice something about that. When, when they were doing that, it was because Jesus was giving them stuff. When Jesus was doing, from their point of view, magic tricks, everybody wanted to be around Him. But if you read John chapter 6 and Jesus begins to make demands for commitment and following Him, everybody scatters. And by the time Jesus was arrested and then crucified, even his own apostles had fled. And so Jesus is asked, are only a few going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to.
Now, there are two reasons that people will try to enter but will not. The first reason is that few, will come to, that few are going to come to Jesus is because they want to take stuff with them as they go through the gate. And that's why it's necessary, Jesus says, to make every effort to enter the gate. Make every effort to see your way clear, to rid yourself of the baggage, and simply follow me. And that phrase, make every effort, is from the Greek word agonizomai. We get our English word agonize from it. It's used in the Bible to speak of an athlete agonizing to win a victory. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. And that word competes. You guys have that on the screen? Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. That word competes is this Greek word agonizomai, agonize. We have the same idea elsewhere. Fight, the good fight of faith. Again, that word fight is from the same Greek word. Jesus says that those of you who do not give up everything that you have cannot be my disciples. You do not come to the point of decision for God the Son, Savior and Lord, And bargain with Him in any way. You don't say, I'll come if. I'll come if I can keep this. You come to Him and you say, you are my God and you are my Lord. I don't know what all you want from me, but whatever it is, I give my life to you. That's why most weeks at the end of the sermon, when we give an invitation, I say to you, that you must realize that you're a sinner and recognize that Christ died for your sin. And then I say, repent. And then I explain, and those of you that have been with us have heard me say this, I explain, repent means, Lord, I'm going to go your way, not my way. And I don't know what that way means. I don't know all that entails, but I trust you and I give my life to you. You tell me what that means and, Lord, I'll do it. No bartering, no bargaining, I'm yours. It's all yours. And Jesus says, those of you who do not give up everything cannot be my disciples. He demands that we retain nothing. So as you think about it before entering and you hesitate, hear this now, you're still holding on and holding back. So if you're a person here right now and you're saying to yourself, well, give me some more time. We get to the end of the message. You'll see that Jesus says this is an urgent matter. And all the while you wait, you're saying he's not trustworthy. And no, I don't have to do this, or I certainly don't have to do this now. That's why we ask on the application, one-page application, that we have folks fill out for membership at our church. We have a number of questions. One of them is this. Does Jesus have the right to complete authority over your life? And are you willing to follow him the rest of your life? If anyone were to say, I'm not sure about that complete authority thing, you won't become a member of our church. He has. And everybody who is a member of our church has answered, yes, he has complete authority over my life. And yes, I will follow him for the rest of my life. Everyone who joins our church says yes, and it holds until until (laughs) we encounter something uncomfortable. Like following Jesus' commands, and I'm just going to use this as an example. I could give 
a bunch of them. But we all say, yeah, Jesus is my Lord. Yes, He has authority over my life. Yes, I'm going to follow Him with my life. Count me in. But then something happens that makes it hard. We encounter some demand of Jesus that runs counter to what we think it ought to be like or what's comfortable for us. Let me give you an illustration. We run into difficulty in our relationships. And we encounter His demand that we reconcile with one another. Well, what am I going to do with that? I don't want to do the hard work of reconciling with that person. They hurt me. Or I hurt them and I am, I'm embarrassed by that. I don't want to do that. Yeah, but remember Jesus is Lord. Remember that piece? And Jesus says that's what you do. And so our church covenant requires, quote, if one seeks to transfer to our church and has an unresolved conflict with someone in his former church, we will require and assist him to make every reasonable effort to be reconciled to the other person before joining our church. Our transfer policy asks a number of questions, including these. Are you aware of any broken relationships from prior to your departure or as a result of your departure from your former church which have not been mended? Were you involved in any type of gossip or slander during your preparation to leave your previous church? And we're asking those because you're coming to a church that really does believe Jesus is Lord. And when you join this church, you say, He has authority over my life and I will follow Him in every aspect of it, including in the stuff that's hard and that you're embarrassed by, that you've done or has been done to you in relationships. Does everybody here hear that? We don't just say, yeah, Jesus is Lord, until it butts up against something that's uncomfortable for us. Few are on that road. And yet, in the book of Revelation, we read at the end of human history, there will be multitudes around the throne, and we read multitudes... But we have to consider, friends, that those multitudes are from the billions who have lived thus far. I believe that the Bible teaches something called the, the rapture. That word means to catch, to catch away. It's a biblical concept. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 17, the Bible says that the Lord will catch away, that we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That's what we mean by rapture. And there's been a lot of speculation about, wow, when that happens, I mean, there's just going to be, you know, zillions of people who are going to disappear from the earth. I mean, everything's just going to shut down because there's going to be all these Christians that are going to be gone. And Jesus says, you know, few find it. I believe in the rapture. I don't know how many people are going to go. I don't believe it's as many as most people think because few find it there are lots of people who profess jesus not so many that possess jesus i'll give a second reason that few enter through the narrow gate at the end of the message but the christian life is unyielding it's uncommon it's unpopular fourthly it's unfailing unfailing 
Each of these roads leads somewhere. The broad road leads to eternal destruction, the narrow to eternal life. Of the broad road, you might say it results in an epic fail. And the billions who have traveled it are surprised to find where it led them. Some of you might be familiar with Dante's Inferno. In Dante's Inferno, he wrote of hell. And in his description, as he comes to the gate of hell, it has this inscription above the gate. I am the way to the city of woe. I am the way to a forsaken people. I am the way to eternal sorrow. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Now, most people, as they think of hell, they think of this kind of inscription that you would find above the gate of hell. So that's the very reason that Satan doesn't use that kind of inscription. (laughs) You know, he doesn't say, if you go through the wide gate and you go down this broad road, it's going to lead you to destruction, abandon all hope, those who enter here. You know he doesn't say that, right? No, above the wide gate that puts you on the broad road that's traveled by so many and leads to eternal death, it says, your best life now. This way to heaven. Proverbs 16 says this, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. But the Christian will not be disappointed. He knows the end of the road that he has chosen, and he will, according to the authority of God's word, he or she will unfailingly arrive at their destination as promised. That destination is life, life everlasting. The Christian life is unyielding and uncommon and unpopular and unfailing and lastly, uncompromising. The Bible speaks of Jesus as a stone that makes men stumble and a rock that makes them fall. The word that's translated stone and translated rock in those verses is the Greek word skandalon. Jesus is a scandal in his claim to be God, in his claim that there is nothing that you can do to recommend yourself to God, in his claim that he has done all that is necessary and that he alone can bring you to eternal life. Scandalous. A rock, a stone that makes men stumble, a rock that makes them fall. Now, I said earlier that our conventional wisdom says that choice is freedom and freedom is good. But from God's standpoint, hear this now, from God's standpoint, obedience is freedom. Obedience is freedom. And that kind of freedom is good. It's not that choice is freedom and freedom is good. Obedience is freedom and that kind of freedom is what is good. And Jesus, in verse 13, issues a command with a sense of urgency. He says, enter through the narrow gate. It's a demand for action now. Don't stand and admire the gate or wait to see if there are other options. Enter the gate now. Remember that we saw from Luke 13, someone asked him, why only few? Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few going to be saved? And he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because I tell you, 
Many will try to enter and will not be able to. Now, I gave you one reason why that's the case earlier. Because people want to bring baggage in with them. Jesus says, uh-uh, it's a narrow gate. You don't bring your baggage in with you. You come to me and me alone. Here's the other reason that many will not find it. It's because they delay weighing their options. Because Jesus went on to say this, Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us, but he will answer, I do not know you or where you come from. And he went on to say, Then you will say, But we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he'll reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, you evildoers. One commentator says this, The significant words of this little parable about the house owner's locked door are really the ones with which it starts. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, that is, to a question concerning the number of people who will be saved, Jesus gives an answer concerning the time of salvation. At present, the door is still open. But when once the owner locks up, the time has arrived and the chance to get in will be passed. On whatever grounds the latecomers may base their appeal to be recognized by the Lord and admitted to His heaven that they have met Him, that they've listened to Him, the fact remains they did not actually take the opportunity to go in through the narrow door when it was opened before them. And Jesus says the door will be closed. And He says to you now, now, enter through the narrow gate. I quoted a portion of Robert Frost's famous poem, The Road Not Taken, when he said, Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. But then he added this, And that has made all the difference. Will you enter through the narrow gate, Jesus, now, today? If you do, that makes all the difference. I say in your take-home truth, Jesus calls us to a life that is exclusively devoted to Him. We offer you, opportun offer you opportunity to enter the narrow gate. I mentioned earlier our normal invitation that says, realize that you're a sinner. Recognize that Christ has done what you could not do. He died for your sin. Repent. Here's my life, Lord. I'm going to follow you. I leave my baggage behind. I don't know what all you want from me. It doesn't matter because you're you and I trust you and I need you and I'm going to follow you. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. And when do you do that? You do that now. And you can do that from your heart to God now as you bow your heart before the Lord, before the Master, before your God. I invite you to do that. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for preserving these words of God the Son, the Lord Jesus. Challenging words, though they be, for all of us because of our sin, our rebellion, our desire to do our own thing and make our own rules and design our own choices. And also because of our culture. Lord, we've been inundated with the notion that we are sovereign, that we determine the outcome, that we decide what's best for us. To thine own self be true, we're told. 
Oh, Lord, but we ask that you be true and everyone else a liar. And I pray that your Holy Spirit is moving on the hearts of some now, causing them to see the truth of your word, to see the truth of their need, their desperate need for a relationship with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that they are coming now from their hearts to you, repenting of going their way and and abandoning their way to you and asking you to take them without barter, without bargain. Lord, those of us who have said we believe in the Lordship of Jesus, help each of us to examine those areas of our hearts and our lives where that commitment has come into conflict with our comfort zone or our notions of the way it ought to be. You make demands upon us, and they are non-negotiable. So, Lord, help us to accede to your demands and find the freedom that comes as a result and help us to be friends indeed to one another as we see others who are going a different road, professing Jesus, but pursuing their own agenda. Help us to be friends who love them more than we need them so that we call them to repentance in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen.